There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. It's Thursday, October 6th. From inside the WTOP newsroom, this is the DMV Download, brought to you by the men and women of Steamfitters Local 602. Get an estimate and learn more at steamfitters-602.org. Today, another bus of migrants pulled up in the pre-dawn hours, dropping off more than 50 people in front of the vice president's residence. It's the latest bus sent by governors of Texas and Arizona. WTOP's Neil Augenstein was on Massachusetts Avenue when the confused and exhausted migrants stepped off the bus. I can only imagine what it would be like to end up in a country where you don't know where you are. My guess is they don't know what's coming next. So what happens to these migrants after they arrive? We talked to the head of an aid organization, Karasen, that works to get them shelter, food, and ultimately work. These are not people that are burdened to our community. These are potential success stories that will strengthen our community. Thanks for joining us. I'm Luke Garrett. And I'm Megan Cloherty. That's the sound of dozens of migrants getting off a bus this morning in D.C. It's the latest in what has been hundreds of buses arriving in the region full of people who recently crossed the U.S.-Mexico border. Governors Greg Abbott of Texas and Doug Ducey of Arizona say busing migrants to D.C. is making their community safer while sending a message to the Biden administration. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser has accused Abbott and Ducey of using these people as political pawns and has been refused help by the National Guard. She's asked multiple times. WTOP's Neil Augustine was there when the bus pulled up this morning. Neil, tell us what you saw when the bus pulled up. This is a very weird situation, and it's the first time that I've seen uh, a busload of migrants arrive here in D.C. Massachusetts Avenue, as you know, is a, is a beautiful thoroughfare through, uh, through D.C., and uh, I was standing right across the street from the Naval Observatory, which is where uh, the vice president's residence is. And at 6.30, by the way, uh, reporters and others had been tipped off that this would likely happen. Mm. Uh, we were standing there on the sidewalk when uh, when a bus showed up. And I looked and it was had Texas license plates. The Secret Service wasn't terribly concerned. The bus didn't go into the, the property, mm. but it parked on Massachusetts Avenue, which is uh, actually kind of a, of a strange situation because normally you're not allowed to park on on that side of uh, <laughs> it's a busy street yeah it is a busy street and, and you know again this was 6 30 in the morning so there was uh, there was commuter traffic but uh with the reporters running across the street to uh, with their with their phones and and also their tv cameras we're standing there on the sidewalk as the doors opened uh inside there were however many People fit on a bus, four dozen, you know, 50, 60 people, men, women, children, some of them still sleeping on their parents' shoulder while they were standing there uh, in the bus. Uh, they stood up. Uh, they, so many of them had masks, uh, mm. you know, the COVID masks. 
Uh, and I assume they had traveled nonstop from mm. from Texas. It's not clear. I, I don't speak Spanish, and uh, and the people who I spoke with, uh, I was able to ask them Ecuador and Venezuela, and they said, see. So, mm, okay. so, you know, I was able to, to at least ascertain where they were from. Neil shared some really compelling Im- images on his social media if you want to check that out. But can you describe sort of the, their state? I can't imagine being in that scenario where you get off the bus, you don't even really know where you are or where you're going. Can you kind of describe what they, what they seemed like they were feeling? The people got off the bus, I would imagine, after a long bus ride, they seemed uh, relieved. There were people from an aid group there who were speaking to them in Spanish mm. uh, and waiting at the bottom of the uh, of, of the ramp as they, they came down. And uh, the people filed off the bus. Uh, the the uh, people said hello in Spanish, and uh, many of them uh, responded. My Spanish is is mal, so I don't really uh, you know, understand any, the other things that were that were being said. But the the families huddled together. Uh, I think you know some of the the children noticed one uh, little girl. Her father was being interviewed by somebody who was uh, a Spanish speaking reporter, and the little girl is as cute as could be. Uh, obviously overwhelmed by uh, by what was happening. Yeah. Uh, confused, I, I, I'm sure. But there was an aid group there that, that did gather them all around and explained in about three minutes what they could expect mm. in the next few hours. Uh, there were uh, two buses, smaller buses, that were already standing by, and the people got on the buses, and uh, they drove away to, to their next location, uh, where uh, the the aid group is not making public where that will be, mm-hmm. but uh, but the people will have a place to to sleep and and get something to eat today. And one of the more compelling parts of your reporting this morning was a video you took of kind of a reunion of sorts, um, where you know two people had seen each other probably for the first time in a long while. Can you tell us about that moment? I mean, what happened there? I was standing there uh, trying to get a sense of of what was happening. And I heard two people make the noise that people make when they see each other at, a, at an airport or something like that. Uh, you know, there was a, a, a very nice squeal and a hug, uh, a man uh, and a, a woman. The woman was, was crying. <laughs> it was really very, very touching. Uh, they walked hand in hand toward the bus where uh, they were going to go someplace else. I think, you know, this happened so before dawn, um, Neil's standing there, and a lot of people who don't see this and don't watch it on the news aren't really aware this is happening in our area. Neil made that point in the newsroom earlier today. Mm. Like, while you're sleeping, these things are happening, and they have an impact here. So, I mean, you mentioned it was the first time you'd seen that, but did that kind of strike you like this national story really, you know, arriving on Massachusetts Avenue? I think that uh, while reporters and, and podcast hosts will do a lot of dissecting about what it means and the political reasons behind it uh, and political showmanship, uh, perhaps, but for the people who got off the bus this morning, this was these were people who were who were getting off the bus after a very long trip. 
I can only imagine what it would be like to end up in a country where you don't know where you are. My guess is they don't know what's coming next. Mm. Uh, I assume that they that they came here because they wanted a, a better life uh, in this country. I don't know whether they are aware of the political uh, activities that that go along with when uh, bus full buses full of migrants come uh, any place in, in in the U.S. But for those people, I don't really think that that they care that much about the political import. Right. For them. They're with their families or they're, they're, by, they're by themselves and, and not quite sure what's coming next. Mm. Well, Neil, thank you for bringing us there to what you, you know, reported on and saw this morning. My pleasure. And coming up after the break, how do these migrants get connected to the resources they need? We talked to a local aid organization about the biggest challenges. Backed by the experience of its hardworking members, Steamfitters Local 602 is ready to take on your next commercial heating, cooling, HVAC, or refrigeration project. Steamfitters Local 602 adds value to our community through its partnerships with local contractors and building owners, all while keeping the focus on improving the lives of its members and their families throughout the DMV. For work that's on time and on budget, go to steamfitters-602.org to schedule your next project. That's steamfitters-602.org. Steamfitters Local 602 changing lives. I'm Paul Wagner. Join me as I dig deep into the mysterious case of the Potomac River Rapist. Listen to Unknown Subject, Season 3 of WTOP's award-winning American Nightmare podcast series, available now wherever you get your podcasts. For months, local aid organizations and nonprofits were the only ones helping the thousands of migrants that were bused to D.C., connecting them with shelters and food. But it didn't take long until their resources wore thin. In September, Mayor Muriel Bowser declared the influx of migrants to the city a public emergency. And that declaration allowed her to funnel up to $10 million in city funds to services, which are now being used to coordinate agencies to help migrants when they arrive and connect them to resources, just like our Neil Augustine saw this morning. Karesin is one of the organizations that's helping these migrants once they arrive here in D.C. And we now turn to executive director of Karesin, Abel Nunez, who joins us now. Abel, thank you for being here. Uh, Thank you for having me. And the last time we talked, it was July and Mm -hmm. there was no city funds dedicated to the welcoming of migrants. Now we've seen this emergency order from the mayor. So what has changed between July, the last time we spoke and now? Well, I think that the city has taken a much more intentional uh, response to the crisis. I think before they were part of it, there was no dedicated funding. I think that now that there's dedicated funding, it takes pressure off of us as nonprofits to try to get, you know, private funding to do this. Because in order to be sustainable, you really need government support. And how many people would you say you're serving now? And tell us, you know, I'm kind of wondering if people understand the scope of the number of people that have come into the city in the last couple months? Well, so I wanna do a caveat, right? So there's who's coming on the buses. And and since April, that has been over 200 buses, a little bit over 10,000 people. The majority of those people are not staying in the the Washington DC area, right? They're moving on to other places. Also, I wanna clarify that buses are not the only way immigrants come into our city. Every day, there are hundreds of of immigrants that come through family connections and through other means. So I just wanna make sure that the public understands because people think, oh my God, this is the only way immigrants are coming. That is not the case. 
And can you tell us about kind of the infrastructure that's been created since this $10 million has been put towards, you know, really welcoming these migrants to D.C.? What does that look like from, you know, when they step off the bus and enter in the nation's capital? Hopefully with the $10 million that has been allocated, we can find a centralized location where people can be received. And that's going to help because unfortunately, as you've seen in the past couple of weeks, the governor, particularly of Texas, wants to make this a spectacle. And so he can move the drop off point, you know, from Union Station to the vice president's home. I mean, I guess he could change it to the White House without any notification what those changes are. So having a permanent place where we can address independent of the time of arrival or the location of arrival, we just have to make sure that they get to their point of drop off to that center. It will become an easier way to deal with the flow. So that's what the money can do. It can also pay for case managers for those that are staying and want to transition them to more permanent housing, to using the other resources if they have children for schooling, figure out uh, where they can get employed and things of that nature. Abel, what do you think is the biggest challenge uh, facing this issue right now? Obviously, you're talking about funding and resources, but do you think that there's a challenge that people really don't understand that you're facing and you can kind of explain to us? Yes. So one of the biggest challenges is, is how they are received. So one, they're not undocumented immigrants. These are people that have been processed at the border by Border Patrol. They have been given a credible interview so that they know that they have the potential to apply for asylum. But unfortunately, the federal government is only giving them a 60-day permission called parole to be in the in the United States legally without any work authorization. Mm. So when they come into our city, the first thing they want is a job, right? Because that, that, that means that they can generate their own funding, their own money, pay for their own housing, but they don't, uh, they don't have that ability to do this. So that forces them to go into the informal economy, right? Because there are 11 million people in this country that are, don't have status, but are working, gainfully employed in, in multiple sectors of, of, of the economy. And so this is something that can be quickly fixed by the Biden administration. One, by extending their parole to maybe a year. Two, giving them a work permit. That makes them self-sufficient, and that means that there's going to be less reliance on government services. But we're all worried about the inflation. We're all worried about a recession. Well, they can be a component of improving our economy, strengthening our communities. But unfortunately, when you limit them to only a 60-day permit, no work authorization, then, of course, they have to rely on charity or, worse, municipal government services. And so, you know, when we look towards, you know, solution to this issue, it really does sound like, you know, we are seeing the local impact, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, but the solutions are lying, you know, in the federal congressional uh, court. Is is that what you're kind of saying? The ultimate solution is with the federal government. And that's one of the things that I agreed with the mayor that, yes, immigration is on the purview of the federal government, but people in your city is a local Issue. So that's why it's important that the federal government does uh, everything it can do with its policies and the permission and the work authorization. Then we need the local government to put in some resources to help with that integration, because ultimately what we want is for these people to be self-sufficient because they're not coming here for charity. They want to work as they're looking for that relief, right, as they're applying for asylum. So I think we need to understand that in this country, immigrants get integrated via family or community. 
but this flow does not have that currently in the DC area. And we can look at historically. So I am from El Salvador, right? When I came in the late seventies, when there were very few Salvadorans, there was very little infrastructure. 40 years later, there's a massive infrastructure. You know, there's, there's over 300,000 Salvadorians here. Right. So if mm. Salvadorians were coming into the area, they would be easily channeled into integration services by the community. But given the fact that this are Venezuelans that are, are very new to our country, they, they need a little support. But that little support is an investment in what they can achieve. And in 20 years, we're going to be talking about, oh, my God, this vibrant Venezuelan community that is here. It behooves us to provide small investment resources that could then help them integrate better and be contributing members of our of our community. Will this busing an influx of migrants to D.C.? Is there any end in sight? Or as the mayor said, this is our new normal. What is your take on that? Well, we'll have to see, right? I think a lot of these stunts by these governors are tied to an election year, right? November is an election year. Right. Having said that, what happens in migration flows is the success of people coming into an area plants a flag. So what happens is that future flows uh, that have nothing to do with the buses will continue to come to D.C. So, for example, we are getting people now, they didn't go on the buses. Maybe they went to San Antonio. They, they couldn't get anything there. They connected maybe with a church or some other agency that helped them out. And when they requested where they wanted to go, they said Washington, D.C. Why did they say that? Because in their social networks, mm. uh, they put in the people that have passed through aid. I was received well in D.C. You know, I didn't have such a bad time. And that becomes a flow. That's what happened with the Salvadoran community. There was already a small community here that started in the, in the late 60s and 70s. And that's why people headed from El Salvador to this area. So we can see that phenomenon from Venezuelans if enough of them come here and send messages through WhatsApp, through Facebook, through all the social media that we have what we need to focus on is the positive effect of migration. So these are not people that are a burden to our community. These are potential success stories that will strengthen our community. The perfect place to end it. Uh, Abel Nunez, thank you so much for your time. And we'll continue to follow your work, especially as it supports the Venezuelan community that is budding in our area. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. And before we go, I want to give a quick shout out to one of our listeners who sent us a note yesterday. Shout out to Laurel. She gave us a really awesome note just about the episode, what she thought about it. And she pitched some ideas, which just reminds me that Megan and I love hearing from listeners and what you guys want us to look into. Legit idea, Laurel, actually. We're looking into it. And yeah, I mean, it's just funny because people ask reporters a lot of times, like, where do you come up with story ideas? It's literally (laughs) just being like what the heck is going on with that construction site that's been sitting there for yeah. 10 months? Or yeah. like, why is that sign upside down? Or I wonder what happened to so-and-so. I mean, it's just ideas that you come up with throughout your day and just kind of noting them for yourself and and pursuing them. So if you guys have any of that throughout your day, we would love to hear it. Yeah, and you can go to our website if you don't know how to contact us. There's actually a button where you can email us and it sends it both to Megan and I. Mm-hmm. And um, Laurel's a great example. You know, she's had this observation. She told us her observation. Now we're looking into it. So if you think of something, if you're at a coffee shop, something occurs to you, just let us know. You know, we're always happy to check it out. And that'll do it for us today on the DMV Download. We are brought to you by Steamfitters Local 602, of course. Our managing editor is Craig Schwab, and our music is by Real World. Give us a review and rate our show if you get the chance. And tell your friends about this show. Also, family, welcome to tell them, too. (laughs) Uh, You can follow us on social media where we post content every day. You can find out more about this podcast. Send us your requests at dmvdownload.com. 
The DMV Download is a product of WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in D.C., 107.7 FM in Virginia, 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland, online at WTOP.com and on the WTOP News app. Have a good night. 